are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Rachita Vora, co-founder and director at India Development Review. Before IDR, Rachita led the Dasra Girl Alliance, a multi-stakeholder platform seeking to improve maternal, adolescent, and child health outcomes in India. Rachita has a BA in history from Yale University. Thank you, Rachita, for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Thanks, Sita. Thanks so much for having me. To start with, can you give us a quick introduction and share a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I've been working in the social impact space for around 16 years. And if you had asked me when I was a kid what I wanted to be when I grew up, I don't think I'd ever have imagined that this is a career choice I would have made. I grew up in an upper middle class family. So I grew up with a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunities. And I think because of those, I was able to attend Yale, which is really where I think the seed for wanting to work in the service of others really took root. I didn't realize it when I was there. Maybe it was the kind of friends that I kept, but it was really when I moved back to India in 2007 that I began to feel very strongly that I wanted to use my education for something that was bigger than me. And this was also alongside sort of at a time when it was just growing inequality and the wide income disparities, gender disparities, class disparities that I was noticing coming back to India after a while really hit me hard. And so I did sort of speak to a bunch of people and try to figure out where within the social impact space I could work. But then once I made the decision, there was really no looking back. And so I started working at an organization called Swadhar Finserv, which was one of the first urban microfinance institutions in India at the time. And then, of course, went on to work in CSR and at different kinds of organizations over the course of my career. And it's been an incredible education and reflecting on it. I don't think I'd change a thing at all because ultimately it brought me to IDR, which is a job that I absolutely love. After Yale and Cambridge, this is Indian students and youngsters who are studying. There's a huge amount of pressure to actually conform to existing expectations. How did you manage to do that? Was it an easy decision? Did it require a lot of soul searching? Were the people who said, oh no, don't do this. What are you doing after Yale? Wasting your life going into the social sector. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think my parents were too thrilled, honestly. A lot of my peers that graduated my class ended up working at investment banks and some of the top consulting firms in the world. And then I also had friends who actually spent a year abroad teaching English in some country somewhere. So. I think it was definitely something that I had to convince my parents of. And it didn't help that back then in 2007, actually, I didn't really have any friends or any people that were senior to me that I knew that had chosen this as a career path. And so even sort of figuring it out took a little bit of time. But honestly, 
I think once I knew, it felt like a call. And once I knew that this is what I wanted to do, it was actually very easy. The difficult part was trying to figure out where within the social impact space I might fit. What was I interested in? Because it's such a vast field. There are so many areas you can work in, so many kinds of organizations you can be a part of. So for me, it was really about, well, where do I begin? And I was really fortunate to meet Veena Mankar, who set up Swadharf and Serve, and she's been a mentor and like my full sort of hashtag life goals kind of person. And I had the opportunity to sort of learn under her and the rest is history. That sounds like not easy to do, but I think once you're convinced, you've made a decision. So considering that there are not too many women-run media houses, especially covering the social sector, what was the ambition that you and your co-founders started with when you set up IDR? So IDR is the brainchild of one of my co-founders, Manita Shetty. There are three of us in total. So there's Manita, Devanshi, and myself. And honestly, I think IDR was just born out of frustration. So what we had actually seen over the years of working in this space is that we had the solutions to a lot of the problems that India was facing, right? Whether it's malnutrition, whether it's issues with sort of learning outcomes, maternal mortality, we had many of the solutions. And Really, the problem was that they weren't reaching the right people at the right time in the right format for them to act. And we began IDEA really just asking the question, what if we made this information available and we made it contextual and we made it relevant to people who were taking decisions, whether it was nonprofit leaders running programs, whether it was policymakers, whether it was CSR, what if we gave them the information they needed? Would it result in more effective funding decisions or policies that reflected ground realities. And so that was really the initial idea. We spoke to about 100 people before we started trying to understand where they go to learn, what do they do if they find themselves stuck on a particular problem? How do they find solutions? And interestingly, everyone told us that they don't read. It was 110 out of 100 people saying we don't read. But fast forward, we sort of tweaked our model a little bit and we built a product, we built an audience, we built an organization. And it was only through this that actually we realized how big our dreams were. Because the three of us would sit, Manita would always, I think the first month we had maybe 5,000 visitors to our site and we were making projections for the year. And she would say, by the end of the year, we're going to get to 100,000. And it just seemed so unlikely, such a moonshot because we were at 5,000, there were three of us, we had no idea. We probably had funding just for six months anyway. But I think that has continued to be how we do things. There's this kind of understated ambition that I think characterizes how we've always done things at IDR. And um, yeah, it's just been a hell of a ride. Sounds like a fantastic ride. But I think the most essential ingredient for anything that is success is the belief that you all have. I think that's the most important thing. And that's what drives most successful businesses. So you said you all did an initial dipstick with 100 people, which sounds like an amazing thing to have done. So what has been the response from the sector and the support? Have there been any naysayers, people who are like saying, what are you guys doing? I was just going to say, I'm sure there are many naysayers. It's just they've been kind enough to not tell us to our face. But maybe we'll find them on Twitter or some social media platform. Honestly, it's been incredibly validating. I think what was proven quite quickly was that the sector really was aching for 
a product to come in that made information and insights and the latest thinking available to a vast number of people. And I think that actually really helped with our initial traction because when you fill a vacuum, it's yeah. very easy to get validated and to do really well. And so that was in the initial years. But since then, what's been interesting is that we've had a lot of mainstream media pick up our articles, which is never something that we expected. So more than half of IDR articles are actually republished and scroll Times of India Online, the print, etc., a number of different publications. And that has really shown us that even people outside the sector are interested in these topics. IDR is a little bit different from a mainstream journalistic outfit in that we see our role not just in informing, but we very carefully track what happens as a result of an article being published on IDR. So we want people to either think or act differently after reading something on IDR. And that doesn't always happen, but when it does, I think it shows us the ways in which what we publish is being used by people. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. Early on when we started IDR, we had somebody write a piece on critiquing the social sector as not being caste diverse. And the piece was published both in IDR as well as a much more established online news media publication. And then after the piece was published, the author got a lot of feedback saying, I read your article in IDR and you pointed to this problem. What about the solution? How are we going to solve for this? And the author actually came back to us and said, I want to do a follow-on piece, but I want to publish it on IDR because I know that decision makers who can actually do something about this are your readers. And then it kind of cuts through the noise a little bit. And for us, that was incredible because this person was actually choosing a much smaller, lesser known publication to write what they wanted to write because of what might come out of it. And our articles have been used for sort of internal strategy changes. They're used in academic curriculum. We've had it used extensively for policy advocacy, especially during COVID-19 and a lot of the policies that were being pushed out. We had a lot of people from the social sector kind of writing in and saying, look, we want to publish because we want to take it and say, this is why this is not working or that is not working. So I'm sure we're making a lot of mistakes as well. But so far, the response has been really positive. That's amazing. I mean, the examples that you've shared shows that it's considered as a credible platform for information on the sector. So that's a brilliant sort of outcome to have. The social sector in India has been under huge pressure for a long time with the dwindling pool of donors, the regulatory environment, negative perception, of course, a small talent pool. And COVID, of course, has squeezed the sector as it has done for everything in the world. What are the big issues facing the sector and that you're going to focus on? So that I think you laid out all the big issues. I mean, you're absolutely right. There are definitely issues with funding, with talent, with the reputation of the social sector within sort of the larger narrative. But I think right now, the issue that's going to have the most long-term implications is really the regulatory climate. And just to tell you a little bit and to tell listeners a little bit about what it's doing to the sector, right? So. The FCRA is an act that actually covers international donations to nonprofits. And over the last decade or so, there have been various changes to the act that are making it increasingly restrictive and onerous for nonprofits to comply with. Nonprofits have to apply for a license um, every year, essentially. So even if they have the license to accept international donations, they have to keep getting it renewed and there's no guarantee that it'll be renewed. 
And if I were to just make an analogy, if you think of what sort of water is to, to human beings, right? And you compare that to, for instance, the FCRD and accessing international funding. Now, imagine if somebody came and told you that in order to get water, you need to apply for a license and you may or may not get it. And then even after you get the license, there's an authority that's going to tell you how much water you can use for what purposes in your home. So how much can you drink? How much can you use to wash your vegetables? How much can you use to have a bath? If you run out of water, you can't get water from a neighbor or somebody else. And there's only going to be one location in India, no matter where you're based, through which you're able to access the water. How long do you think this fictitious human being is going to survive for? So if you were to think of this from the context of nonprofit organizations and their historic reliance on international donations, it has created a huge vacuum. A lot of domestic giving still tends to be towards direct service delivery, which means working in schools or health delivery system. And so when organizations that are doing different things, for instance, research or academia, these organizations have historically relied on international funds. And now when that source has been entirely cut off, it's making it incredibly, incredibly difficult. And then you layer on top of that the pandemic. And so many organizations struggled and many of them didn't survive. And so you have a domestic giving situation that isn't perhaps where it could be. You have international funding increasingly under threat, and then you have people reeling from a pandemic in a sector that is anyway already underfunded and under-resourced. So there have always been ebbs and flows when it comes to policy and the society space, but I think especially now, it's extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And I actually know organizations, very established, large organizations, that when they get their FCRA renewal, it is such a relief. They're almost throwing a party because it's literally just sort of, oh, great, we're going to survive. That's not a good place to be in for a sector that has so much to contribute. And this segues into my next question. How important is the work of the social sector towards helping India meet its SDGs and also the aspirations to be a five, six trillion dollar economy? Because, I mean, the social sector services some of the most underprivileged and marginalized communities in the countries. And these people form a huge swathe of the country, right? And we don't seem to recognize that. Absolutely. So the SDGs have 17 goals, 169 indicators. And these are not going to be achieved without collective effort and without collaboration. I mean, that's what SDG 17 is all about, right? So whether it's ending poverty or it's ensuring access to clean drinking water. Organizations in the social sector are going to be crucial to this effort because like you said, they're the ones that have been embedded in the, in communities. They're the ones that have been delivering services and fighting for basic fundamental rights of people at the last mile for decades. So I think that's a given. But now let's come to the Indian economy, right? More than half of our population is under the age of 35. And we've known this for a while, but still we're nowhere near leveraging our demographic dividend. I think with the pandemic, we really saw how poor a public health system is to serve the kind of population that we have in India, how inadequate our social security system is, our governance is. Every year, the Asar survey publishes how abysmally our students perform. And 
all the evidence is pointing to how the pandemic has set us so far back, not just in terms of education, but in terms of health and so many other indicators. And so we might have in schools, for instance, 100% attendance, but if kids aren't really learning, then how are they going to grow up and go on to study in higher education or how are they going to be sort of active, positive contributors to the economy? And the social sector works across these areas, right? Whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's livelihoods. And it plays a very crucial role in filling the gap wherever government services and the markets don't reach. And they're the ones that really fight for people at the margins. So I think there are a hundred reasons why the social sector and the work of civil society is so crucial to India's growth as an economy. But really, even if you just look at human capital, the civil society space is crucial in ensuring that the basic fundamental rights of people that today are not perhaps where they should be are upheld. And that basic services that allow you to function in society are delivered at a quality that they should be. And that is really, I think, what's going to be crucial if we want to get there. I mean, of course, there's a major role for industry and, and yeah. government and the systemic changes that need to happen. But I don't think any of it is going to happen at the pace that it's going to happen without civil society. And then, of course, there's the role that the social sector plays in sort of ensuring a healthy democracy, holding government to account and to ensure that policies are inclusive and democratic. So it is as important a sector as the business sector, as the private sector and as the public sector. And I think perhaps it doesn't get as much importance by the media or generally in sort of dinner time conversations. Yeah, I think more acknowledgement and more awareness amongst the general public is also required to see what role they play in India, moving India forward. Are you seeing any instances of collaboration between the state and social sector that are not reluctant or oh, we have to partner with them because there's no option, but a proactive efforts to use the expertise to reach marginalized communities or solve some of the biggest problems? There are a ton of collaborations at a sub-national level, whether it's at a state level, at a district level, the nonprofit sector and local government actually works very closely together. So a lot of times nonprofits will pilot a program and then get an evaluation done and have the evidence to prove that the program achieves the outcomes that it's stated. And then we'll sort of go to the government because ultimately, if you want to work at scale, the government is the only partner. And there are examples of this across the country where the government will say, okay, your education program is working. I want you to scale it to all schools in 10 districts of the state. And this happens at all levels, not just nonprofits. It happens with foundations that co-fund or will partner with the government to execute these massive programs. So there's definitely collaboration on the execution side. But then there's also a lot of working together on technical support groups and advising on policy and essentially supporting the government wherever support is invited. And some of the biggest successes in India have actually come out of such collaborations with the whole polio eradication campaign, right? It was a combination of the Indian government, but Rotary International, which is a foundation, UNICEF, um, and other civil society institutions. And there are many examples of programs like this. So how do you ensure that you're not wearing rose-tinted glasses when you're covering the sector? Do you call it out for its shortcomings? I think idealism and cynicism are actually two sides of the same 
point. I am very idealistic and I have so much hope alive in me that I think it makes me that much more frustrated when I see the state of things today. So I think it's very easy actually to not wear rose-scented glasses. And I think the people that have a romanticized view of what it means to work in this space are probably new to it or are sitting outside of it. But once you're in, it kind of exposes itself to you when you see it for everything it is, warts and all. We've been very passionate about this at IDR and we actually have a feature series called Failure Files. And the purpose of it is really to normalize conversations about what's not working. And so it's actually both a text-based series as well as a podcast. And the idea is to get leaders from across the sector, social entrepreneurs, heads of foundations, nonprofit leaders to talk about professional failures, as well as ways in which we as a sector might be failing at certain things. I think it's crucial to be able to have these conversations because ultimately the work that so many organizations are doing, it changes lives. So we need to be honest about what's not working. This is a cultural thing. I think most of the time we don't want to acknowledge failure. And I think the sector is also worried about talking about failures. Does that mean that somebody thinks that, oh, we failed. So the next thing we take up, we, we will also fail. And I mean, they don't see failure as an opportunity to learn. So brilliant that you're doing that. I'm going to definitely check that out. Yeah, I want to share a story. So it wasn't easy to get to Failure Files, right? We launched Failure Files in year four of IDR being around by five years old now. But we wanted to do it in year one. And we went around asking people if they would be willing to talk about failures. And these are even people who have been wildly successful. So even if they were talking about a failure from 10 or 15 years ago, and nobody bit. In fact, the only person who wrote an article was Anand Sinha, who heads Packard Foundation and is very passionate about the topic himself. And he's a funder. And then we really struggled. But I think something changed at some point and we were able to partner with Acumen and what we saw is that younger leaders are a lot more open to having these conversations. So through our partnership with Acumen, we had a lot of their fellows publish articles. And then I think it ended up taking on a life of its own because people saw, I guess, how cathartic it even was to put it out. And we've had sort of one person wrote an article about sort of a falling out with a funder and the funder ended up reading the article and then reached out and said, I didn't know that this happened and they were able to resolve their issues. and so. We've had really interesting outcomes from the series, but you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to do. We're just at the beginning. I think we get more no's than we get yes's when we ask people, <laughs> but we're soldiering on. Yeah, no, I think you're doing an amazing job putting this out. I think talking about failure can be incredibly freeing. And it can show people that, yeah, people are doing it. They're not talking about it, but it happens to everyone and sort of normalizing it. Where do you see IDR in five years and what is next for IDR? What are the conversations you're having all the co-founders? IDR is going to change how people around the world understand and create social impact. So in five years, we definitely plan to have a global footprint. We reach around 6 million people monthly right now. So our plan is that we want to grow around 10x. Wow. Yes. And we think that that will be possible because we also earlier this year launched IDR in Hindi. So now we're available in English as well as Hindi. And we want to add more diversity, not just in terms of language, but also having greater representation 
within our authors from different communities. So those are just in terms of where we would like to get to with reach and numbers. But I think it's also really important to us to build a really solid organization that isn't about three founders, but stands on its own feet. And in 2027, we'll be a 10-year-old organization. And sort of my personal hope is that we're able to show the sector and maybe the world that it's possible to build an organization a little bit differently. And what I mean by that is we don't need to, what is that saying? Move fast and break things. We don't need to do that. It's possible to be really ambitious, but be really understated about it. It's possible to build an organization that's kind, but still delivers on targets. Can we have organizations whose measures of success are not just their bottom lines, but are what is the culture of the organization? How do they care for the team members? And can we put out a different kind of leadership? One that isn't what we typically see, which is a lot of male chest thumping. So I'd love for us to be having more of those conversations in general about what it means to build a great organization. Wow, that sounds amazing. And I'm sure you will achieve that. All the best for it. Do you have existential questions five years down the line into IDR and looking at your peer group, thinking, what am I doing? Why am I here? Would it have been just easier to do that? God, no. I consider myself so privileged because I went to two of the best universities in the world and had an opportunity to learn from and meet incredible people. But truly, I think that my education has been in the social sector and most definitely at IDR because one of the most incredible things of the job that I have is that I get to meet people who have done incredible things in their lives. And I get paid to do this. Like you're doing, you're having a conversation about me and I get to meet people who've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years and have made really courageous choices and have such a different perspective on life. And I think seeing the world we live in today, the kind of divisions, the kind of violence and just complete loss of faith in political leadership around the world. When I meet people like this, it just restores my faith in humanity. And I think I wouldn't give up a day or a minute of that when I look back. So I definitely don't have any existential questions. And I think that if you were asking the question a little more broadly in terms of sort of what am I doing on this planet? I often think of this quote, and I think it was by Oscar Wilde, but I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't want to butcher it. And I think he says something along the lines of, if you knew what you want to do from a young age, it's a curse because that's the one thing that you just end up doing your whole life. If you don't know what you want to do, then it's a gift because you have your whole life to try different experiences and discover what it is that you want to do. And I think that that's really empowering because today I'm at IPR and I've done a bunch of things previously, but I think this journey of figuring things out as you go along. I mean, isn't that the whole point of life anyway? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you paraphrased it. So we are at our last question. What or who inspires you to do what you do and to make the choices you do make? So, I mean, I think I did answer that in the previous question, which is really just, it's the kind of people that I get to spend time with. And I think more than learning about 
how to solve social problems or how to work in this space or how to fight for people's rights or whatever it is that these people are doing. It's actually just an education in how to live and what a good life looks like. And I draw immense inspiration from that. Fantastic. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Rachita, for making time for this conversation. I really enjoyed it uh, and really enjoyed understanding more about the social sector and what IDR is trying to do. And I hope that the listeners will listen and they will make some decisions and choices after listening to your story also. There'll be positive choices for everyone, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Sudha. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.